This morning in Scott's Bible class, we were studying the book of Deuteronomy, and the book of Deuteronomy is about spiritual renewal. Uh, The Israelite people had come to the edge of the promised land. Moses was about to die. And in the book of Deuteronomy, he gives them a series of four sermons, if you will, uh, declaring to them all the things he thinks they need to know uh, before they enter the promised land and before he dies. And the thing that we were talking about in class today was how that we need to renew our happiness And I appreciate that lesson very much because I believe that of all the people on the face of the earth, Christians should be the happiest. Uh, We should have uh, flowing out of our lives all kinds of joy because of the fact that we have been redeemed by the blood of the Lamb. We have, as we saw in this song a few moments ago, a heavenly home. This world is not our home. And therefore, out of the heart of the Christian, there should be always Abundant joy flowing. Uh, in fact, I read a statement the other day that says that, uh, that the flag of joy should fly from the heart when the King is there. And if we have Jesus Christ in our heart, we shall have, should have joy in our lives. And uh, we know that that joy is not a uh, Pollyanna type of joy, but instead it's the joy knowing that As Romans 8, verse 28 says, that no matter what happens to us, we know that all things will work together for good because we do indeed love God. But we're also very aware of the fact that as we go through this life, as we deal with the different struggles that we deal with, as we have Satan trying to tear us down all the time, that sometimes in this life there is going to be some crying. There are going to be some times when we shed some tears, even though our joy is still in the Lord, even though we can have abundant joy in the Lord, there are still times and circumstances in life where we're going to weep. Another good Bible class that uh, Frankie is doing on Wednesday night on the book of Ecclesiastes. You see how I'm putting all these commercials in here? A good class on Wednesday night on Ecclesiastes, not too long ago, he discussed the verse where Solomon says there is a time to laugh and there is a time to weep. Certainly in this life, there are going to be some times where we're going to weep. And when we think about the life of Jesus Christ, here was a man who was not only the Son of God, but he also was as human as you and I are. And he understood, even knowing the things that he knew, even though he knew about heaven better than any of us know about, even though he understood the glories that awaited not only him but us, still in his life, because he was totally human, he also cried. Just like you and me, tears came out of his eyes. Just like you and me, he had heartache, he experienced all the emotions that we experience. It's interesting, and I'm sure that there are more times than just what is recorded in the Bible, but in the Bible, the Bible only records three different times where we have a record of Jesus Christ crying. Now, like I said, I'm sure he cried maybe more times than that, especially when he was a little baby. But the Bible only records three. The the first time that is recorded is in John chapter 11 and verse 35. And uh, this is the shortest verse in the Bible. And if someone asks you to memorize a a memory verse, here's one for you. Uh, John 11, 35 just simply says, Jesus wept. 
And the setting of that particular verse is when Lazarus, one of his good friends, passed away. And Jesus, even knowing that he was about to raise him from the dead, but when he looked around and saw the heartache and the pain that the family and others were suffering, he was overwhelmed with feeling their grief, and the Bible makes this short but profound statement that the very Son of God, the one who is the life and the resurrection, he too wept. But then later on in the Bible, you move into the Garden of Gethsemane. And there Jesus Christ, the night before he, he, He's about to be put to death, He's in the garden, and He's praying to His Father in heaven. And as He's praying to His Father in heaven, Hebrews chapter 5 and verse 7 tells us that there was strong cryings and weeping. Now, I don't believe that Jesus was crying because of the fact that He was going to be put to death. I don't think he was a coward. I don't think he was someone who feared the physical aspect of it. But the cup that he was praying to his father that he hoped would pass was the cup of suffering that would come as he carried the entire weight of the world on his back, as he carried the sins of the world on his back. And as he carried those sins, he knew also that he was going to be for the first time in his entire life ever being, and He's always existed in His entire existence. He was going to be separated from His Father in heaven. And so Hebrews chapter 5 and verse 7 says, with strong cryings and weepings did He do this in the garden. But the third place that we're going to see today that Jesus cried is in our text today. And I hope you'll open your Bibles to Luke chapter 19 and verse, beginning at verse 37. And you can do like I have done, is go ahead and place your ribbon there, because our lesson is going to be coming from this text, and though we'll mention some other verses, the body of our lesson is going to be found right here in Luke chapter 19. Before we actually start looking at the text, I do want you to zero in on the first verse that Frankie read for us a few moments ago, Luke chapter 19 and verse 41, which basically says that when Jesus looked at the city... Or when he beheld the city, the text says, and he wept over it. This is the only other time that we have Jesus crying. And this morning I want us to spend some time talking about the things that happened on this particular occasion that caused Jesus to cry. In the context of what we're going to be looking at, we see earlier in this chapter that Jesus is making his triumphant entry into the city of Jerusalem. This is the day when the city of Jerusalem is going to welcome him with pageantry and with honor and going to be saying, Hosanna in the highest, hail him, hail him. There will be the taking off of the coach, throwing it on the ground. There will be the waving of the palm leaves. This is the setting in which we have today. But Jesus on this particular day cried. And so we're going to spend some time talking about what made him cry on this particular occasion. But at the same time, in order to make it applicable to us, we're going to ask the question, will Jesus weep again? So setting that stage, I want you to be thinking about what made Jesus cry. And certainly as we leave here today, we want to so think about our own lives and not cause Jesus to weep again as he sees our lives, and the way that we live. 
But the very first thing I want you to notice begins at verse 37. And I want you to notice that Jesus wept, first of all, over their superficial religion. Beginning at verse 37, it says, And when he was come nigh, even now at the descent of the Mount of Olives, the whole multitude of the disciples began to rejoice and praise God with a loud voice for all the mighty works that they had seen, saying, Blessed be the King that cometh in the name of the Lord. Peace in heaven and glory in the highest. When you look at this text, you see this is a great occasion for Jesus Christ. He's coming into town riding on a donkey, and as the other uh, Gospels tell us, this is a day of celebration, this is a day of rejoicing, this is a day uh, of pageantry and people declaring that He is the King and that people need to follow Him, they're rejoicing over His good works, but not very long from this particular circumstance, Jesus is going to be crying. Now, why is he going to be crying? If this is a day of celebration, and this is a day of pageantry, a day that's giving him honor, why, why does he start crying? Well, he understood and appreciated the fact, because he is the Son of God, that this was all just superficial. That this really didn't mean anything to the people who were saying these things. Because he understood and, and knew that once they knew what kind of king he was going to be, that they really didn't care anything about him. You see, like then and like today, there are many who profess to believe in Jesus Christ. There are many who profess to be Christians, but just like the Israelites of long ago, uh, people are just simply going through the motions. And Jesus cried because these people were just simply going through the motions. They were giving him honor, but they really weren't giving him honor. When Jamie was a little girl, her and her brother David, oftentimes when I was uh, the preacher in Knoxville, Tennessee, I'd be in my office working and I'd brought them to the building and when I'd walk upstairs to the auditorium, uh, David and Jamie would be up there playing church. And one would be uh, preaching and one would be leading singing and eventually they'd get to the Lord's Supper and I think they did that money so they can eat some crackers, but I don't know for that for sure. But what were they doing? They were playing church. And Jesus is saying we need to be very careful. And something that causes him to weep is Christians who just simply go through the motions. That they're simply spectators when they come to the worship service, not participators. They're simply spectators when work needs to be done in the church. So let others do it as they simply watch and get to reap the benefits. They're simply spectators when they think about how that they need to give God the glory that needs to be given to Him. They're simply playing church. And even though here in the text it appears that, that, um, that Jesus is getting glory and honor, but this same crowd that we read right here in the text is now saying, Hail Him, Hail Him, will be in just a few moments saying, Nail Him, Nail Him. That's how quickly the crowd turned because they weren't into it with their hearts. It was simply superficial religion. The same Jesus reminds us in Matthew chapter 7, beginning in verse 21, that not everyone that saith unto me, Lord, Lord, shall enter into the kingdom of heaven, 
But he that doeth the will of my, my Father which is in heaven. The same Jesus over Matthew chapter 15, beginning at verse 8. He's talking about the religious people of his day. He says, These people honoreth me with their lips and draweth nigh to me with their mouths, but their hearts are far from me. Jesus wept over the city of Jerusalem because he saw hundreds and hundreds of years of the Jewish religion, but that Jewish religion meant nothing to the people. Because if they understood what being a Jew was all about, if they understood the Scriptures, if they understood what God was all about, they realized that here was someone who was special in their midst. Now, obviously, we don't want Jesus to weep again today over our superficial religion. We need to be very careful that we're not just simply playing church, that we're not just simply going through the motions, but yet our religion means something to us. It's a heartfelt religion, a heartfelt religion that leads us to action. Where we stop being just simply spectators, but we become participators. We quit sitting on the promises, sitting on the premises, but start standing on the promises. Jesus wept so very long ago because of their superficial religion, but that particular thought leads us into something else we see in the text. Look at verse 41, and we see also that Jesus wept because of their passing opportunity. Verse 41 says, And when he was come near, he beheld the city and wept over it, saying, If Thou hadst known, even thou at least, in this thy day, the things which belong unto thy peace. But now they are hid from thine eyes. What Jesus is saying here in, in this text is, what an opportunity they had. Here was coming into Jerusalem the King of Kings, the Anointed One, the Messiah, the Christ, the one that would save them from their sins, the one that the Scriptures and the prophets have been talking about for thousands of years. Here was the Son of God in their midst. But when Jesus looked at them and beheld them, He realized that they don't realize what they have. Their hearts had become so hard and their eyes so blinded, they couldn't see that the very Messiah was in their midst, the King of kings, the Son of God. And as we learn later on, as we study through this book and the rest of the Gospels, the problem they had is that Jesus wasn't the kind of king that they wanted. Jesus came riding into town on a donkey. Now, if they had paid some sense to Old Testament Scripture, they would realize that this would be Jesus that would come into town riding on a donkey because that's what kings rode in on town, into town in the past. But you see, as time went on and as they became more affluent with the world because of the Roman occupation, they got used to greater and grander things. For example, when Julius Caesar came into the city of Jerusalem, he came in with 40 elephants leading the way. When Mark Anthony came into the city of Jerusalem, he had lions leading his procession. But here is Jesus Christ coming into town on a lowly donkey. 
And when Jesus realizes that they're missing uh, this opportunity, the text tells us that he wept. But once again, the lesson for us here is, how often do we miss the opportunity? We get so blinded by the things of this world. We get so caught up in our own self-importance. We get so caught up in the material things of this world that sometimes we miss opportunities that God has placed before us. Opportunities to do good to other people. Opportunities to give as we should when it comes to the contribution. The opportunity to lead someone else to Jesus Christ. So many times in our life, an opportunity is there. There is a person who's just waiting for you to speak a good word for Jesus, uh, but yet we don't even pick up on the opportunity. Just another day in our lives, nothing's really any different. But Jesus weeps when we miss our opportunities. In fact, this morning there may be some who uh, may be Uh, Right now, there's an opportunity in front of you to become a Christian, to dedicate your life to Jesus Christ, and that opportunity is there, but that opportunity is passing. I know sometimes we think that we have all the time in the world to respond to the gospel of Jesus Christ, but we need to understand that God has limits and that there will come a time when, when He'll just simply give up on us. Over in Genesis chapter 6 and verse 3, God decided to destroy the world and he was talking to Noah and he says, "Uh, my spirit will not always strive with man. In other words, there comes a time when I said enough is enough. Over in Romans chapter 1 and verse 24 and verse 26 and also in verse 28, we hear the very chilling words where Paul writes, God gave them up. God gave up on them. In other words, God gave them the opportunity to respond. He had put them in a Christian land. He had given them a Bible. He had let them hear preaching from the Word of God. But yet with all those opportunities, Sunday after Sunday after Sunday, people, as the text says, passed that opportunity by. And then... There's the opportunity of this life. The Bible doesn't tell us how long we have before we die. That's something that is left up to this world. Some people die at a young age. Some people die at middle age. Some people die in their old age. But nobody knows how that's going to turn out. All we're... Certain of is what Hebrews chapter 9 and verse 27 says, and that is, it is appointed unto man once to die, and after that the judgment. Uh, In other words, um, we may think that because we are feeling good, that life is good, that I don't need to respond to uh, this opportunity to become a Christian because I have all the time in the world. You may think that because you're a young person that you don't need to worry about that because you have a long life ahead of you, but just simply go to the cemetery and look at some of the headstones and see when some people have died. You may think you're in perfect health, you don't have anything to worry about, but pick up the newspaper and read of some of the tragedies that happen in life where someone's life is snuffed out unexpectedly. 
You may think that one day you'll live to a ripe old age and you'll be lying there in your bed at 110 years old and you got your pajamas on and your pillows propped up comfortably and all your family is going to be around you and you can say your goodbyes and you'll say goodbye to the end of a blessed life. But folks, far more people die with street clothes on than they do with pajamas on. I'm not saying that to scare you. I'm saying that to make you think so you don't pass uh, this opportunity that we have this morning. James chapter 4 and verse 14 reminds us, he he says, what is tomorrow? I mean, you you don't really have a tomorrow because what is this life? Our life is but a vapor that's here for just a little while and then passeth away. This morning, my hope and prayer is that Jesus is not weeping again because there is someone here today who knows they need to respond. But yet, Jesus might already know because He knows all things that this might be that person's very last opportunity. But as we close our lesson today, notice what Jesus brings up next. Tying into this superficial religion that they had. That it was a religion just on the surface. There was no heart in it. They were just simply playing at the religion. As he thought about their passing opportunity, how that they had salvation right in their midst, and they were, they were blind to it. Notice the next thing that Jesus talks about. The impending judgment. Look at verses 43 and 44. For the day shall come upon thee, that thine enemies shall cast a trench about thee, and compass thee around, and keep thee in on every side, and shall lay thee even with the ground, and thy children within thee, and they shall not leave in thee one stone upon another, because thou knowest not the time of thy visitation." When Jesus looked at the city of Jerusalem and He beheld their superficial religion, when He beheld their passing opportunity, He, because He is the Son of God, knew their impending judgment or doom. Life was very peaceful at this time for the Israelite nation. Oh, they didn't like being under Roman rule, but yet under Roman rule they had it better than they've ever had it before. Uh, life was going well. They had permission to, to observe their religion. Uh, they had permission to, to work. They had permission to do all these things under Roman rule, and life was good. But Jesus says, no, nah, there's a great day coming. In 70 A.D., a general by the name of Titus surrounded the city of Jerusalem and laid siege to it. And when the walls finally came down, he went into the city of Jerusalem and killed 1.5 million Jews. They say, according to historians, that blood ran through the streets, that so many people were crucified that they ran out of trees. And Jesus, in his ability to see the future, saw this great day coming. And when he thought about what was going to happen to the inhabitants of Jerusalem, his people... Text says, and wept over it. Now, obviously, there's certainly a spiritual application for us today. 
We may go through this life and we may think, well, you know, life is going well. Um, I'm going to live to a ripe old age and, and oh, I know that Jesus might come back one day, but, I, but I, he hadn't come back yet, so I really don't need to, to think about that. But then we're reminded of the words of 2 Peter chapter 3, beginning at verse 8. Peter reminds us that just because it seems like um, a long time, we need to be reminded that God doesn't keep time like we do. He says, you need to know something, understand something. Uh, One day with the Lord is as a thousand years, and a thousand years is one day. But the Lord is long-suffering toward us, not willing that any should perish, but that all should come to repentance. But then he says... But the day of the Lord will come. As a thief in the night, the day of the Lord will come and the earth that we have here and everything within it is going to be burnt up. And then in verse 11, he says these sobering words. He says, Seeing then that all these things be dissolved, how should we then live? 1 Thessalonians chapter 1, beginning at verse 8, reminds us that there is a day coming when Jesus Christ will return to this earth in flaming fire, taking vengeance on them who know not God and have obeyed not the gospel. There's a great day coming, a great day coming, a great day coming by and by, when the saints and the sinners shall be parted right and left. Are you ready? For that day to come. Jesus looked at the city of Jerusalem. And as he looked at the city of Jerusalem, and he understood how that they were just going through the motions of being religious, as he looked at the city of Jerusalem and realized that they were missing opportunity after opportunity to be saved, as he looked at the city of Jerusalem and saw the impending judgment that was coming, All we have is these words that Jesus cried. This morning, once again, we have to drive the point home and we hope it sinks into your heart of hearts. As Jesus looks at your life this morning, is He simply seeing some people playing church? Is He seeing a group of people who's been given opportunity after opportunity, but we've squandered that opportunity? Does he see a group of people that one day, as that group of people stands before God on the judgment day, and Jesus understands that those people are going to spend an eternity in hell? And we picture him in his heavenly throne as those tears run down his face. And he he says the statement, I gave it all. I gave, I gave my life for thee. What hast thou given me. If you're here this morning and you're not a Christian, I'd be more than happy to sit down and talk to you about what the Bible says about becoming a Christian. But basically, the Bible's very clear that Romans 10, 17 says that faith cometh by hearing and hearing by the Word of God. We begin at this point to discover what God wants us to do. We don't look at manuals or catechisms or other men's opinions or religious counsels. We just simply go back to this book and this book alone to find out how to be saved because 
That's where it begins. And as we go through this book, we discover, as the passage I just quoted says, that salvation all begins with faith. The same Jesus in John chapter 8 and verse 24 reminds us that we do not, if we do not believe that He is, then our, that He is the one that was sent by God, then we're going to lose our souls. The same Jesus reminds us that it's all about faith, as the writer of Hebrews tells us in Hebrews chapter 11 and verse 6, that without faith it is impossible to please Him, for he that cometh to God must believe that He is, and that He is a rewarder of them that diligently seek Him. But that faith should lead to action. I know we live in a religious world today who just simply says, faith, all you got to do is have faith. But that's a dead faith, as James tells us in James chapter 2 and verse 24. He says that faith without works is dead. That a person can't be just simply faith only. In fact, that's the only place in the entire Bible where faith only is mentioned. And so there's other things that God wants us to do, not to earn our salvation. They're not works of merit, but they're simply an obedient heart to the commands of Jesus Christ. Luke 13, 3, Jesus says, Nay, except ye repent, you all likewise perish. You need to change the direction of your life and repent. Uh, Paul reminds us in Acts 17 and verse 30, there was a time that God winked at the ignorance of man, but now commandeth all men everywhere to repent. Repentance, a change in life. Quit following ourselves and start following God and His Son, Jesus Christ. The word metaneo means a change in direction, like a ship was heading in one direction and turned completely around and went to another direction. There's also in the Bible the, the idea expressed of confession. Romans 10.10 reminds us that with the heart man believeth unto righteousness, but with the mouth confession is made unto salvation. We need to be willing to confess that Jesus Christ is indeed the Son of God before this world. But here's where sometimes people don't go quite far enough in what the Bible teaches. Remember, this is our only source in God. We care less what other men may have said down through the centuries. We care less what people have voted on. We care less about what some council decided somewhere. Instead, we want to know what the Word of God says. And the Word of God tells us, well, I just use Jesus' words. Mark 16, 16, He that believeth and is baptized shall be saved, and he that believeth not shall be damned. It's no wonder then in that very first gospel sermon that Peter preached in Acts chapter 2, after he had declared to the people there that Jesus was indeed the Son of God, shown by His teachings and by His miracles and by prophecy, he comes to verse 36, it says, Therefore let all the house of Israel know assuredly that God hath made this same Jesus whom ye crucified, both Lord and Christ. The text says when they heard this and they realized they had crucified the Son of God because of their sins, They were pricked in their hearts and they said to Peter and the rest of the apostles, men and brethren, what shall we do? Peter didn't have to guess. Peter didn't have to come up with something that they'd never heard before. Because Jesus had already told them what they needed to do. And so Peter told them on that first gospel sermon, that first day of the church, if you will, verse 38, you need to repent and be baptized for the remission of your sins. Going all the way through the book of Acts, you see this continually. You read about people believing, you read about people uh, repenting, you read about people confessing, but in every example of anyone being converted in the New Testament, that conversion always ends in baptism. In fact, the very last recorded event that we have in the book of Acts of someone uh, being 
converted to Christianity is a man by the name of Saul who hated Christianity. But as the Bible tells us there in Acts chapter 9, as he was on his way to Damascus, he saw the resurrected Lord, and the man who was an unbeliever very quickly became a believer. Now, we are all very aware of the fact that Paul had faith on this occasion. He saw the resurrected Lord, he believed in Him, but he still understood that now he believed in the Lord that something was expected of him. So he asked the Lord the question, Lord, what will you have me to do? And what did Jesus tell him? Oh, you believe in me now, there's nothing you need to do. No, that's not what he said. He said, you go into the city and you'll be told what you need to do. That's what Jesus told the believer Paul. The believer Paul went into the city. In Acts chapter 22, Paul gives us an account of that particular event while he was in the city. And a preacher by the name of Ananias came to see him. Paul had been praying and fasting for three days before Ananias got there. Here is someone who believed in the Lord Jesus Christ with all his heart. He had an advantage we didn't have. He saw the actual resurrected Lord. Here was a man that was willing to confess that. Because he asked the Lord, what will you have me to do? And here was a man who was obviously living in repentance because he had been fasting and praying for the last three days. But listen to what happened when the preacher got there. Here's the instructions that the Lord said that Paul, who was then Saul, would receive when he got to the city of Damascus. The answer to the question, Lord, what will you have me to do? Here's the answer. Acts 22 and verse 16, the preacher Ananias said this. He said, And now why tarriest thou? Arise and be baptized, and wash away thy sins, calling on the name of the Lord. You see, Paul still had his sins. If he didn't still have his sins, even though he believed, even though he was contrite, even though he was willing to do anything, Paul still had his sins. Or else it would not make any sense for Ananias the preacher to say, Hey, Paul, you need to do this so you can have your sins washed away. Listen to what he told him again. He says, And now why tarriest thou? It's almost like he's saying, Don't miss this opportunity. Uh, Quit doing what you're doing, and you need to do this now. And now why tarriest thou? Arise, get off your knees from praying, Arise and be baptized and have your sins washed away, calling on the name of the Lord. Too many times in religious circles today, people think calling on the name of the Lord is simply going to Him in prayer and saying the sinner's prayer. But you don't find the sinner's prayer anywhere in God's Word. You don't find an example of somebody doing it. You don't find an example of of how to say the sinner's prayer. But calling on the name of the Lord... It happens in Acts chapter 10 and verse 13 where Paul makes that statement, For whosoever shall call upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. But if you look at the beginning of the book of Acts and you look at the end of the book of Acts, in Acts chapter um, 3, Acts chapter, uh, when the day of Pentecost, in Acts chapter 3, when um, Peter was preaching that very first gospel sermon, at the very beginning of his sermon, he quotes the prophet Joel, and he says this is what was being talked about when Joel said, For whosoever shall call upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. And the sermon ends with, Repent and be baptized for the remission of your sins. The very last conversion in the book of Acts 
Ends with that statement again, but this time it's applied to the Apostle Paul. And Ananias says, And now why tearest thou? Arise and be baptized and wash away thy sins, calling on the name of the Lord. Paul had been praying for some time. He was a sinner who had been praying for some time. But Ananias says, you want your sins washed away. You really want to call on the name of the Lord. Well, you need to be baptized for the remission of your sins. If you have any need this morning, whether it is to become a Christian or you need the prayers of the congregation or you need to rededicate your life to Jesus Christ, uh, we're here to help. Uh, We hope that if there's anything that's been said in this lesson you don't understand, that you please take the time to talk to me about it and let me explain more fully or help you in any way that I can. Uh, This congregation is here because we love God and because we love each other. But won't you come as together we stand and sing.